Hello, and welcome to another HeartPod, cardiology podcast for trainees. My name is Dr. Dominic Pimenta, and today we will be reviewing the 2015 European Society of Cardiology guidelines on effective endocarditis. changes as we go through a couple of cases. Case number one. A 50-year-old man with known mitral valve prolapse undergoes a routine dental filling procedure. A week later, he starts experiencing night sweats, fevers and chills. His GP diagnoses a viral respiratory illness and recommends monitoring. Three weeks later, four weeks after his original dental procedure, he presents to a district general hospital with a temperature of 38.2 bilateral splinter hemorrhages and a positive blood in his urine dip. A bedside echo shows a 3 cm by 3 cm highly mobile mass attached to the posterior leaflet of the mitral valve. Let's pause there for a second. This isn't going to be a podcast where diagnosis is a particularly tricky part of the cases. This gentleman grew streptococcus oralis and three blood cultures. His GP had ignored his heart murmur on his index presentation as there was already a long-standing diagnosis of mitral valve prolapse. So could this have been prevented? The European Society of Cardiology have issued specific guidelines on prevention of effective endocarditis in the 2015 iteration. They recommend antibiotic prophylaxis for only specific dental procedures in the presence of specific high-risk cardiac conditions. Where previously we had recommended antibiotic cover for dental conditions in patients at risk, now there are a specific set of criteria that we should pay attention to. Routine dental procedures that do not manipulate the gingiva or periapical region or perforate the oral mucosa do not require antibiotics. So only invasive dental procedures as opposed to routine hygiene appointments or fillings we would recommend the use of antibiotics at all. Coupled alongside that, high-risk conditions, and these include all prosthetic valves, including TAVI, cyanotic congenital heart disease, or previous infective endocarditis, a group that we sometimes forget about. For non-cyanotic congenital heart disease, antibiotics are only indicated if they have had operative correction with prosthetic material within the last six months, or lifelong if their operation left residual shunt or regurgitation. So essentially you have two groups and they need to overlap to be able to support the recommendation of antibiotic prophylaxis in this group. Highly invasive dental procedure coupled with high risk conditions, essentially the presence of prosthesis or previous infective endocarditis or cyanotic heart disease. Looking back at our case, mitral valve prolapse, nor routine fillings met that criteria, but it's a good reminder that we still do recommend prophylaxis in certain high-risk groups. Antibiotics recommended for prophylaxis are amoxicillin or clindamycin in single doses. So back to our case. Our 50-year-old man has a transthoracic echo that shows a 3cm by 3cm highly mobile mitral valve vegetation with concomitant moderate to severe regurgitation. It looked like a golf ball swinging back and forth. He was admitted to CCU and started on antibiotics as per local guidelines. He remained paroxial on day one of admission. On day two, he was reviewed by the cardiology team and discussed with microbiology. 
On day three, he was discussed with a cardiothoracic registrar at one local tertiary centre and deferred for decision to transfer until their MDT the following morning. On day four, the MDT outcome was deferred until the next week as the case had not been presented. On day five, our patient began to clinically deteriorate with a labile blood pressure and climbing inflammatory markers. On day six, the decision was made to arrange urgent transfer for surgery. Various discussions between microbiology, two cardiothoracic registrars, one cardiothoracic consultant, and two cardiology consultants took place. After a full working day of discussion, the patient was accepted and transferred that evening for operation the following morning. Let's pause again there. As we all know, coordinating logistics for complex and time-limited patients such as these can be extremely challenging, and this often falls to the cardiology registrar unless there is a local process already in place. The ESC guidelines 2015 strongly emphasised the importance of the infectious endocarditis team, consisting of cardiologists, surgeon, infectious disease specialist. The guidelines also specify the expected facilities as an endocarditis reference centre. Immediate access to cardiac imaging, which is transthoracic echo, transesophageal echo, cardiac MR or gated CT, and immediate access to cardiothoracic surgery and immediate access to neurosurgery and interventional neuroradiology. Decisions that should be taken in this MTT format include antibiotic type, duration and follow-up therapy, surgical timing and follow-up, and should report to national registration audits. This may seem an obvious step and is certainly standard practice in many centres, but this isn't regimented. Despite its banality, the presence of these MDTs has been shown to save lives. The guidelines reference multiple studies which demonstrated an impressive one-year mortality benefit for infective endocarditis patients managed in this fashion, compared with routine care. One 2009 before-after observational study showed a reduction in mortality well over 50%, which has been replicated in multiple studies of similar design since. The reasons for this are not as clear. However, as you can see from our case, the logistics of care can be very complex. Certainly, the evidence supports creating and maintaining regular MDT working for this patient cohort. A good project for anyone working somewhere where this isn't already routine. Anyway, back to our case. Our gentleman is transferred late on a Friday night and undergoes emergency mitral valve replacement on Saturday morning. Why was the surgery expedited? Indications for left-sided endocarditis, urgent surgery, are well covered in the new guidelines. Broadly speaking, they can be remembered in three categories, heart failure or shock, uncontrolled infection, and prevention of embolism. The only emergency indication is any regurgitant endocarditis lesion causing refractory pulmonary edema or cardiogenic shock. Urgent surgery, meaning within a few days, is recommended for heart failure symptoms associated with a regurgitative lesion. Both of these are class 1 evidence. Uncontrolled infection can be aggressive, locally advancing infection, abscess, fistula, enlarging vegetation or fungal or multi-resistant organism despite appropriate antibiotics. Less well-supported indications for urgent surgery in this category are persistent blood cultures despite appropriate antibiotics and prosthetic valve endocarditis with either staphylococcus or HASEC group blood cultures. The last category, prevention of embolism, is also the most complex. In this category, it's useful to remember vegetation size is the key discriminator. Over 10 millimeters is considered large in the guidelines, over 30 millimeters very large. Our gentleman would fit into that very large category. Class 1 evidence supports operating urgently on greater than 10 millimeter vegetations following at least one embolic event despite appropriate antibiotics. So one stroke in a patient with a relatively 
large lesion, for example. Class 2A recommendations include surgery for large vegetations associated with severe stenosis or regurgitation. The remaining indications are based entirely on vegetation size, regardless of presentation. Adequate evidence supports urgent operation on very large lesions, greater than 30 millimeters, as is our case here. Less clear is what to do about smaller vegetations without emboli, failure, or severe valve dysfunction. Currently, the ESC recommends operating on isolated large lesions over 15 millimeters, but is a 2B evidence class, so may not always be clinically appropriate. It's useful to remember that 30% of patients have emboli to brain, spleen, or lung, many as their index presentation event. Circling back to the endocarditis team, the two consistent differences in studies between patients managed by the MDT and managed routinely are earlier access to appropriate antibiotics and shorter time to surgery. So bearing in mind these shorter indications is valuable. Back to our case. Our gentleman underwent mitral valve replacement with a tissue prosthetic valve. His operation was complicated, unfortunately, by an ischemic right-sided MCA stroke, which is a recognized complication in about 2 to 6% of operative cases. What was unclear was whether this was an infective emboli or an operative one. He was kept at the tertiary center before being repatriated back to us and then on to a stroke ward. He was then sent back to the cardiology ward when these were felt to be septic emboli, for which the ESC guidelines are quite clear no anti-medication is indicated. A day later, he was found non-responsive in respiratory arrest with fixed pupils. He was successfully resuscitated, but an urgent CT head found a large hemorrhagic area with midline shift. He was palliated soon after. I think this case underscores the need for an integrated and experienced endocarditis MDT, which includes neurological imaging and intervention. Into this area particularly, the guidelines don't venture. How long should patients be on neurological observations in the context of septic emboli? Did this event represent hemorrhagic transformation or a ruptured mycotic aneurysm? Is there scope for routine neurological imaging surveillance to monitor for development of aneurysms? When is the right time to repatriate these complex patients? After being caught out several times with these patients, I routinely perform screening neurological examination as part of their daily inpatient review with a very low threshold for imaging should the suspicion arise. In a similar mitral valve endocarditis case recently, an otherwise fit and well 70-year-old lady, four weeks into appropriate antibiotic treatment, mentioned to us she had some trouble reading in her left eye. On closer examination, she had subtle dysdicokinesia on the right side and reduced visual acuity in the left visual field. A CT showed a large right-sided cerebellar ischemic infarct with a further lesion in the right occipital lobe. She was operated on three days later. Silent or very subtle clinical emboli are also very common in left-sided endocarditis and should be sought out. Right, next case. This will be much shorter. An 85-year-old gentleman is admitted from a nursing home with a background of hypertension, previous stroke, complete heart block with recent single-chamber pacemaker insertion and swallowing difficulties. He is found to be febrile with no clear source. The pacemaker had been inserted 12 weeks prior to this. This wound looks clean and dry and there is no palpable pocket hematoma. Routine septic screen shows normal chest x-ray, negative urine dip, but positive blood culture for Staphylococcus epidermidis in one of three bottles. A cardiology consult is sought, query endocarditis. Bedside transthoracic echo shows no obvious vegetation. So what next? Cardiac device-related infective endocarditis can be very difficult to diagnose. This case doesn't meet the standard European Society of Cardiology Diagnostic Criteria. 
three positive blood cultures are required, and transesophageal evidence is required if initial transthoracic is negative. Increasingly, we are finding patients who cannot tolerate transesophageal echo, so it's worth noting the new guidelines include CT PET as an adjunct. This gentleman grew a further blood bottle with S. epidermidis, so he was evaluated for TOE. He had a poor swallow and could not follow commands, so it was felt that he wouldn't be a candidate. A CT PET scan was performed as an alternative, which showed no uptake around the device. He made a biochemical recovery and was discharged well back home. I only included this to emphasize the role of CT PET in prosthetic device diagnosis, which can also include prosthetic heart valves. And the latest Duke criteria include both PET-CT and cardiac-gated CT as major criteria. Some uptake around new devices, less than three months old, is normal. So the guidelines specify only abnormal uptake in valves older than that is diagnostic. This is useful if you have CT-PET on site. The last practical element from the new guidelines revolves around the use of anticoagulant therapy in endocarditis. Due to the high risk of bleeding from emboli and mycotic aneurysm, the guidelines recommend stopping all anticoagulation in the presence of hemorrhage and interrupting antiplatelets if evidence of bleeding, which is fairly straightforward. What is less clear is how to manage these high bleeding risk patients who already have risk factors for ischemic stroke, namely metallic valves. The guidelines support routinely stopping oral anticoagulants such as warfarin or a DOAC and using low molecular weight heparin for one to two weeks, especially in the case of Staphylococcus aureus, regardless of any embolic phenomena or bleeding risk at the time, although this is not particularly strong in the evidence. So in summary from our cases, we can draw a few key points. Number one, preventative antibiotics and dental procedures are limited to high-risk individuals and invasive dental procedures. Two, the absolute crux of good endocarditis care is early, frequent and organized involvement of the endocarditis team. 3. Indications for early surgery are emergent and urgent. Only shock or refractory edema prompts Im immediate surgery. 4. Neurological complications are common and can be subtle and missed. Number 5. The use of novel imaging is now an integrated part of endocarditis management, specifically CT-PET or SPECT. Number 6. Use caution with routine oral anticoagulants in this cohort as their bleeding risks are temporarily modified. I have been Dr. Dominic Pimenta, and thank you for listening to another HeartPod, cardiology podcasts for trainers.